Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. Yes, we are. Here we are, recording again. Boy, these weeks come around really fast, don't they? It's like every week, it's a new week. <laughs> yeah, Bill. <laughs> That's good. Sure. Okay. We weren't, we're not going to analyze that one too deeply, but it's kind of a nice day out there, which is pleasant after. It is. I have my door open and the dogs are sitting in the sun on the porch. It's nice. And they're not barking, which is really good. Not yet. Yeah, yeah, that can change. So everyone else is doing well then, huh? Hi, Michelle. You're here. Hi, Annette. Good to be here. So um, let's do our introductions and then we'll jump right into our topic. At the controls again is Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. Hopefully your Wi-Fi is more stable this week. We kind of had some issues with I think I got it fixed Okay. for now. (laughs) We'll see what happens. Um, Also here is Brendan O'Reilly. Hey, Brendan. Hi, I'm Brendan. I'm the deputy managing editor. And when did that happen? Deputy managing editor. Wow. Last week. Did it? (laughs) I didn't get the memo, but welcome. Welcome, deputy managing editor. And Michelle's the new features editor. Yep, just sliding right in. I thought that's what you were already. No. I am so confused. I was the features editor. Oh, that's right. That's right. (laughs) Jeez, you should listen to the podcast. (laughs) She wasn't on last week. So. Yeah, but I say I'm features editor every week. I know, I know. But last week was a little a little dicey because Bill was kind of coming in and out. So I was preoccupied with keeping Bill in this in the mix. So yeah. um, Michelle Trowering, our features editor, is here. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Annette. I'm Michelle, and I'm apparently the features editor now. What were you last week? Um, I think I was technically an associate editor. Okay. So you know, I'm stepping up in the world. Good for you. Thank you. So I guess you need some new business cards. I think so. I didn't have any to begin with, but yes, let's order those. So I haven't changed. My name is Annette Hinkle and I'm the arts and living editor still. I don't know if I have to get new cards, but no one's telling me that I need to do that. Uh, So today we are speaking about a story that Michelle wrote in the April 14th issue of the paper which is about what we always, of course, talk about, the housing issue out here. But it was a really interesting take because Michelle talked to individuals from other resort communities around the country that are facing almost identical problems that we are here. And that is very hot real estate market prices going up very quickly to the point where the people who keep these economies humming along can't afford to live there. Michelle, I wondered if you wanted to just do a quick introduction about some of the the people and places that you focused on in your story. Sure, absolutely. Um, So I spent a day kind of going through news headlines looking for other communities that were struggling with affordable housing. It was a straightforward Google search and the results were completely overwhelming. There were at least 30 different resort communities that were facing similar issues. So I started looking at communities that mirrored hours in some way, um, and also communities that I was familiar with to make the reporting a little bit easier. Um, So I ended up talking to people in Nantucket, Massachusetts, Vail, Colorado, uh, the Adirondacks region of New York, and Sedona, Arizona. 
And specifically when I chatted with Nantucket and Vale, I went into those interviews kind of assuming that they didn't know much about the East End, which was true. And so I started by describing to them what exactly it is that we're facing. And both of them came back to me with some variation of, wow, I thought you were talking about Nantucket. Or, mm. wow, you did a great job of <laughs> describing Vale. And so we were able to- It was to just amazing the, in, in reading your article, just amazing the similarity of, of the issues and even some of the proposed solutions. And also the geography. Yeah. Geography, that's what struck me. Yeah. It's like we're all defined by, we're limited by water, um, but a lot of the places you talk to were limited by national parks around them so they couldn't expand out or by you know land features that sort of limit their ability to build out. Exactly. So it's like we were, even though we were coming from these very different places, you know, socially, politically, geographically, it was sort of like we were just, we were still able to have that conversation in uh, in a coherent way, which was nice because we were kind of talking about very similar places. Maybe ideally then if we have the same problems, we can all come up with some similar solutions and feed off one <laughs> another, right? Right. And a few of them asked me at the end of our calls, like, so, you know, do you have any suggestions? And I'm like, listen, we're all in the same boat here. <laughs> like, I can send you the, the package when it's done so you can see what we're talking about on a local level. It sounded like a lot of them were much farther along than the East End. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I thought was interesting is in most of these places, you found somebody who actually had a title of like housing manager or, you know, development of housing opportunities. You know, there was actually a a person in a paid position to um, work on this stuff, which I thought was, that's new to us, right? Right, so that was the situation in Sedona specifically. Um, when I chatted with Shannon Boone, she's their housing manager, but she's not only the housing manager of Sedona, um, she's also the housing manager of Cottonwood. And so that was a new role that was created for her. She just stepped into it last September. And that was born out of a housing study in 2019 that established that both of these cities had the same exact problem. So why don't we create a role that addresses them at the same time? And that's where she came in. So she's in the middle of sort of this multi-pronged approach to address this problem in both communities um, with mixed levels of success. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on how much money these communities can kind of throw at the problem because money of like everything is the root of the problem. And it's probably also the root of the solution. This has been going on he out here for years, but um, I imagine that some of them talked about how the pandemic accelerated it all because with the remote working situation, people suddenly realized they didn't have to be sitting in their apartments in the middle of a big city and they could relocate to these resort communities and get a, a rental or even buy a house there. I mean, I've seen that everywhere that I've traveled in the last year, you know, um, the idea that real estate is going crazy. So how much has the housing issue been exacerbated, do you think, by the pandemic? Well, in the Adirondacks, certainly. Mm -hmm. They experienced the same exact thing that we did, except on the flip side with that exodus from New York City just moving north. So while housing prices aren't anywhere near where they are on the East End, um, for people who live in the Adirondacks and their salaries match that cost of living, um, they're being, you know, they, they can't afford to live where they are now. So um, the Adirondacks, similarly to us, um, they do have a seasonal population. And a lot of those people, while they're looking for year-round housing, 
they're living in their cars in the woods mm. and a lot of them ultimately have to leave um, because they can't afford to find anything. Yeah, it sounded like up until the pandemic that up in the Adirondacks, especially they had a fairly good balance of year round um, and seasonal visitors and they were able to sort of balance that. But the, the pandemic threw it all out of whack when people started looking to buy um, after relocating from New York and they just drove the prices up and up and up, right? Right. For the other communities I talked to, they've been well established as seasonal tourist towns. So I don't think the pandemic really had a tremendous effect on them. They've been dealing with this problem for decades. The writing's been on the wall for a very long time. Yeah. And I was shocked. I mean, I think that the uh, what, the median house price in Nantucket's up to like 2.8 million or something, right? It's a historic high for them. Yeah. That is, I mean, we thought we had it bad out here. <laughs> Yeah, and um, the the man I spoke to for that story, he made an interesting point that because they are an island community, you have services like police departments, fire departments that are staffed by people who don't necessarily live on Nantucket. Mm. And so when you have a three alarm fire, you have firemen who are coming from the mainland over to the island and he's like that's insane isn't that wild and he's like especially because i know i've been on that ferry it's like takes like the fast ferry is like an hour you know right so he's like you can imagine how difficult it is to unless they're flying them over are they flying them into that little airport so they just so their deal so this is also that other issue they don't have the uh emergency service personnel over there right not all of them Hmm. Yeah, not all of them. And he said, you know, you you feel the ripple effect through the community. Let's just say that you have a police officer who can't afford to live on Nantucket anymore, but he's also a sports coach and he's really gifted at that. And so you have this man who now moves off of the island to the mainland and you also have a sports team that right. suffers or, you know, insert why, you know, whatever that is, whatever that volunteer capacity is, is now affected because they can't afford to live there. I was wondering what some of the solutions were that that sounded really intriguing to you and that maybe we've never even considered before that have been creative ways to create affordable housing in these other communities. Yeah, so um, Sedona pointed me in the direction of Vail and said that they're trying to follow a similar similar model um, that they have. So Vail has over a thousand deed restricted residences. Um, as part of this Vail Indeed program. Um, I was really fascinated by this by this program, and I think it's something that could be implemented out here. Me too, right. So it is the first of its kind in the country, period. And um, the director of the housing department, it was explained to me that they saw that nine times out of 10, when someone sold their home, it was sold outside of the local market. So they started this program that basically incentivizes homeowners to restrict the sale of their property forever to those who work at least 30 hours per week on average in Eagle County. So they've essentially created, almost by accident, a secondary market for locals to buy, sell, and trade with other locals. Um, And then second homeowners are kind of forced to do the same among themselves. And they say that this has been a complete 
game changer. So what kind of incentive were they talking about? Did they talk about numbers at all or? Did not give me numbers. No, but it is a financial incentive. So it's probably like if your house is worth a million dollars, they'll give you $400,000 and you can sell it for 600,000 or something like that. I mean, that's how I envision it working is they're just going to pay the homeowner the difference in what the house could have been sold on the open market. Well, that's almost what we're seeing on the horizon out here, uh, right. but it's a little bit in the reverse, but it, it's the idea of shared equity that if you go to purchase a house that's a million dollars and you could only afford a mortgage for 600000 you go in with your $600,000 mortgage, the town out of the proposed community housing fund pays the other 400000 Now the town owns that equity in your house. If you do go to sell it, then the town will recoup that equity and that will go back into the community housing fund so they could do the same incentive structure for somebody else. But I think the thing that makes the Indeed model more a little bit more interesting is it really keeps that house in the affordable housing column as opposed to this other model. And, and, and perpetuity, right? I mean, Yeah, this other model is like, okay, it's affordable this time around, but once that owner decides to sell it, then it goes back on the open market and could be snapped up again by a, um, a a second homeowner who has no intention of being out here. I don't know, Brendan, what do you think? Do you think that this Indeed model is a better way to go? The idea of trying to leave these houses in the affordable column? Well, do those local homeowners need to opt into that or can those local homeowners just sell it to whoever they want? And if it's an option, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that the people who live out here are always going to choose to get the most money. What's nice about what's being proposed to the community housing fund is if the market value of your house is a million dollars, you will get a million dollars. So you would never turn away a local person who can put together a million dollars with the help of the, the town because you're still going to get the same amount of money out of it. Yeah. Unless you, unless you have a bidding war and, and it starts to go to 1.1, 1. Right. 1, 1. 1.2, you know, the guy from right. New York comes in and says, all right, 1.3 and, you know. All, all cash and yeah. yeah, no, no. That's the thing about market value is if it does sell for 1.3, then yes, the market value is now 1.3 million. And a lot of the reason why the market values are so high right now is East of the Shinnecock Canal, we have like a few hundred houses for sale. Mm. We don't have like thousands of houses on the market. So we have many more buyers, including both locals and second homeowners who are out there searching for houses to buy thousands of them and just hundreds of houses to choose from. So uh, yeah, the prices have really accelerated. And and even with this 5% uh, mortgage rates that we have now, it's going to be some time before the price is cool or stabilized. Mm. Yeah, and I, the point that I made to George when we were having this conversation, the housing director, uh, was, you know, I can see that this being put on the table on the East End and homeowners losing their minds and not agreeing to this ever. What about Vail? I mean, Vail has a very similar pool of just sheer wealth. So was there any pushback? And he said, well, you have to keep in mind that we launched this in 2018. And this was before the pandemic. Mm. So you're not, there wasn't such a, you know, a demand. It was there, but it's not quite what it is today. So he said that the timing of that was accidental and immaculate. 
Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. You know, the way to keep houses in affordability for perpetuity, as Annette mentions, is to build those houses as the municipality or as an affordable housing partner like the Long Island Housing Partnership or the Town of Southampton Housing Authority or Habitat for Humanity. Um, taking existing housing and making it affordable just has so many challenges to it oh. because why would you, you know, who's going to be that seller who invested all that money into their home, they built up their equity, they paid off a mortgage, they put in a new kitchen. Is that seller going to want to take less than their house is worth just to be altruistic, especially when they're relying on that money so they can retire? Are they going to take less? Yeah. You know, they paid a lot of money towards that and they want they want to get out of their house what they put into it. Um, in the United States, for the majority of us, Houses are the best way to build generational wealth. Mm. It's worked for more people than the stock market has worked for people. The stock market can be great, but for most of the middle class, the way that they build wealth that they can pass on to their kids is through housing. And they're not going to give that up. Um, you know, the, yeah, people want to be altruistic, but they also want to take care of their own families, which there's nothing wrong with. I, I think the idea in Vail, though, I mean, it, it wasn't people being altruistic. The town was was giving them an incentive. And I would imagine making up the, the, the difference in the price. And, and the scary thing that, that he talked about, Michelle, is, is that, that, you know, when you, and you mentioned it, that nine times out of 10, when somebody was selling the house, it was going to, um, you know, somebody from, from that wasn't, wasn't a local and, and the, you know, we, we, we all know what the end result of that is. And I think that's the, certainly the fear on the East end is that at some point you, you just, you hit a point where, where there are no locals living in the community anymore. And like you said, then there go your teachers, there go your, your first responders, your firefighters, um, you know, everything, schools close, um, Businesses move out of town that are focused on on locals. You know, in, in your you mentioned in your article, and there's no community left. So, I, I think it, you know that with with that specter, maybe more people are more um, eager to protect that community. I don't know. Sure, absolutely, and that is exactly what George said too. That you know, we've always wanted to be a year-round community. We don't want to be this hollow resort town, right? Um, and and that's an issue that Sedona is facing too. Um, and actually, for them, their biggest problem is short-term rentals. Fifteen percent of their housing market is now short-term rentals, mm. um, and Arizona state law prohibits them from restricting them in literally any way. So there are no fees. There is no limiting the number of them. They can't even require a rental license. So 
as more tourists are coming into town, it's driving the need for more short-term rentals, more hotels, which requires more seasonal workers in the tourism industry, and there's nowhere for them to live. So it's just, it's feeding itself in this cycle. This wasn't Michelle's story, but um, I thought that this, the other story that was in the paper last week was interesting about the idea of, um, what do they call them, the, the, the tap, like a accessory apartment. Accessory dwelling units. Yeah, accessory, what do we call them, accessory dwelling, dwelling units? Yeah, ADUs. Yeah. ADUs. Um, so I don't know, what do we think about that as um, a potential solution out here? I think that accessory dwelling units can work as a solution, but it can be restrictive and there can be people that find ways to get around uh, the affordability covenants. One thing that was mentioned at our recent express sessions on affordable housing and finding real solutions to the crisis was that somebody could apply to have an affordable accessory dwelling unit in their house. Somebody who is income qualified could move in and that person, maybe they're supposed to be paying $1,500 a month, but they made a deal under the table with the homeowner to give them, you know, an extra $500 a month under the table. So the homeowner gets as much money as they feel the apartment is worth. And the person who's supposed to have an affordable apartment is now overpaying for it. And somebody else who could have had the benefit of, of an affordable apartment that they really needed is now being iced out by somebody else who's willing to overpay under the table. Uh, the other thing with accessory dwelling units and why I have criticized the, uh, the Southampton town law is that it costs a lot of money to put it in. And then if your tenant moves out and you're not putting in another tenant um, almost immediately, you have to now tear out that apartment. And I, there's a cost to that. And then if in a couple of years you want to put the apartment back in, you got to pay to put it back in again. And wh who's going to spend this much money uh, putting a kitchen into their house multiple times? Sure, some people will sign up for this and they'll get a tenant who stays for a long time and they'll roll it right over to the next tenant. But I think a lot of people are not going to want to get started if they know that they're going to have the town on their backs uh, every time a tenant moves out. Yeah, so the town will be, would be monitoring the tenants that are there to make sure that they qualify and they're being charged the right rent. Yeah, they have to be income qualified and the rent needs to be capped at a certain amount, which is, you know, how do you ensure that that person isn't paying under the table? Yeah. So the big thing with these um, accessory dwelling units is the kitchen. If they don't have kitchens, then they don't qualify as a accessory dwelling unit. Yeah, you can't have a, a separate living space without a kitchen. People need to have uh, something to cook on. That's not just um, what do you call that plug in hot a hot plate? Yeah. But I bet there's a lot of people out here living like that, though, right? Definitely. I mean, uh, I have searched for apartments where <laughs> it was like, here's your area of the house. Here's your hot plate. Right. Yeah, it's like living in a dorm. Giving me throwbacks. <laughs> right yeah, so did you yeah. ever live in a place like that out on the East End, Michelle? Not on the East End, but elsewhere, for sure. It was like, oh, well, this is a sad excuse for a kitchen. Like, here's your hot plate. <laughs> it's rough. <laughs> Instapot, baby. Yeah. Lots of ramen. <laughs> yeah. It's like being back in college. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if this is true or not. I have a, a friend in Southampton who's, who has like a mother-daughter um, place. And she was told that 
if she just took the stove out of the the accessory apartment, then it would no longer be considered an accessory apartment, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's if that's how the law works or if that's just a, a way to get around it or or what, but I thought that was like she would lose the right to rent it as an accessory apartment, you mean, or I guess take take it out temporarily and then put it back in. Yeah, she wouldn't be penalized as having an apartment there or whatever. Oh, yeah. So when I moved into my house, it previously had a um, basement apartment that was legal, but that apartment was taken out before we ever moved in. And when they took it out, they had to remove not only the cooking appliances, but they had to remove uh, the whole mm -hmm. sink for the kitchen. And I, uh, we found out that we mm. were still getting double charged for garbage pickup because when you have a multifamily house, you pay more for garbage pickup in Brookhaven. So we had to have a town inspector come and verify that there was no apartment in existence anymore. Wow. And he saw the drain where the kitchen sink used to drain. And he said, oh, well, you know, that's not supposed to be there. Um, he signed off on it because the drain was actively being used for a dehumidifier. Uh, but he said, like, technically, you can't have that drain in your wall because that's like a sign that it's going to be an apartment, I guess. So you can't have, I mean, growing up, I mean, we always had like wash tubs in the basement near the near the washer and dryer and stuff. You can't even have a sink in your basement. That's crazy. I don't know what the exact cutoff is because, yeah, a lot of lots of people have yeah. slop sinks in their laundry room or whatever. But yeah. uh, that was just like a red flag for the inspector. Hmm. Well, I mean, that just, I mean, it just goes to show you that, that the towns, that the towns and municipalities just have to really look at their codes and, and, and revise their codes. And, you know, along with the big plans that, you know, the places like Vail is doing it, you know, the, the towns have to be cooperative and be focused on, on how do you, you know, how do you overcome some of those hurdles that Brendan's talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, like, you know, like Michelle's story pointed out, it's like the longer you wait, the worse it's going to get. It's not like, you know, I've heard of other, I know that this couldn't be done here or now, but I've heard of towns out West where, you know, more depressed towns, but where people have, or municipalities have actually bought like a series of buildings on main street. And then they are basically the landlords and they're able to rent those spaces to local businesses at an affordable rent. And they can let, you know, tenants live there at an affordable rent. So, but I feel like that, I think that's such an interesting model for main streets, but something that um, I'm sure we've missed the boat on when you have one tiny building in Sag Harbor selling for 18 million that yeah. can't even house people. The know? prices of commercial buildings out here make it impossible really for mom and pop shops to survive. And that's why you see that the mom and pop shops that we do have, the mom and pops also own the buildings they are their own landlords and that's how they can sustain themselves. Right. But when they eventually sell that building to some other company, uh, they're going to jack up the rent as much as they can. And that's why we end up with so many seasonal pop-ups rather than year round businesses. Yeah. So Michelle, I was wondering, um, uh, the, the Nantucket had a slightly different model for affordable housing. How did they deal with it? I was a little, um, it, it seemed a little more complicated um, there program and I just wondered if you could explain it to us in your very insightful way. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a tall order because it is complicated. So um, 
Massachusetts has a law called Chapter 40B in place, and that requires municipalities to hit a 10% affordable housing benchmark. Um, I started writing stories like these about two years ago, uh, and so I've been following Nantucket's progress, and they are currently at 6%, um, and that really has only continued to increase over the last two years. And so um, not even 100 of Massachusetts municipalities are compliant, and Massachusetts has 351, so not even really a third. Um, and so in that case, they have to make what's called, quote unquote, good faith progress. And that is defined as half a percent of the requirement each year if they have an approved housing production plan or one percent if they don't. And additionally, if they don't, they're considered to be out of, quote unquote, safe harbor. And that allows developers to bypass local zoning laws and have essentially one-stop shopping with the ZBA um, for their projects, as long as they allocate 25% of them mm. to affordable housing. So it's like a fast track to get your development approved if you are providing a appropriate amount of affordable housing. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, this has caused a lot of controversy, you know, when these, I mean, as we can all imagine, as these big housing development projects come in front of the boards, you know, they're imagining their like island community that's extremely bucolic and, you know, like being transformed into like a high density place and that causes like public outrage. So this has been a very tricky situation to navigate on Nantucket. So you mean these are people complaining that they don't want this affordable housing? Is that what you mean? Or Yeah, that they don't want these massive development projects that the developers are proposing um, for communities that are not in safe harbor. I see. Yeah. And a number of years ago, that was Nantucket. Right. Mm -hmm. So I guess, yeah, I mean, that's the thing too. I think one of the people that you talked to was interesting. They that whole idea of building like, okay, this is the affordable housing, you know, development, and it's at the edge of town, sort of separated, like, that's not really the goals, you know, not just housing people, but it's housing them. So they're actually an integral part of the community and not sort of isolated as, oh, that's where the affordable housing people live. That was Sedona, right. So uh, a lot of the land inside the city, like the, the hub of the city, is not zoned for multifamily units. So those parcels more like ring the outside of the city. And she said, you know, that's not conducive to good planning. And I asked her why not? And she said, you know, we want neighborhoods that are like multi-tiered as far as income. We don't want to have like all of our low-income housing on the outside of town, especially people mostly in that tier don't have a lot of access to transportation. Uh, and so it'd be hard for them to get more, you know, closer to the city limits than it's, it's, it seems like that, that model of like, um, single family zoning from the, you know, probably post world war II when the suburbs sprouted up has been sort of a, a thorn in the side of, uh, America <laughs> ever since, you know, cause it really does isolate people, single family houses here, apartment buildings here. You know, I've seen a couple, I've come across a couple new developments that are really well done in that they sort of reference, like the the early 20th century models where you have single family houses and then you have like townhouses and then you might have apartment buildings but all in the, this very small core downtown area garages in the back so that there's no you know the cars are in the back in the alley 
Um, so I think that you know, there, there are some ideas about going back to that, but I do feel like that whole, the way that suburbia spread after World War II has sort of been the downfall of a, of a lot of affordable housing options, you know? In Suffolk County, the law is that if you do a subdivision of a certain size, you have to dedicate 10% of your units to affordable housing. And that could apply to apartments and that could apply to condos. And the the way that they'll arrange it is say you have like a luxury condo complex and they're still required to do 10% affordable. Uh, those apartments, you know, they won't be the end units that have all the windows. There'll be units that have fewer windows, but they're still in the same area. So you do have mixed incomes in the same development, but they also can't use the amenities. So as part of your uh, purchase of that affordable condo, you don't get into the pool in the clubhouse that everybody else in that condo association gets to use, uh, which is you know, kind of sad that you have some people living in the same exact place and they don't have access to the same amenities. However, it's how we provide affordable housing to people. So it's it's a bit of a compromise. Uh, and with the apartments, um, it creates opposition to entire developments when only 10% of the units are going to be affordable. People might not mind 40 apartments coming in, but when they find out that four of those 40 apartments are going to be dedicated to people who are low income, low middle income, suddenly they're against the entire apartment complex because they don't want to live next to people who make less than $50,000 a year, God forbid. Uh, another big flaw in that system, and it's been a closed loophole in some municipalities and it's an open loophole in other municipalities is if the trigger is that I subdivide this property or I'm going to build uh, 40 units of multifamily housing and that triggers me having to do 10% affordable. But if I build 39 units where 40 are allowed, I don't hit that trigger. So I'm just going to build 39 units so I don't have to have uh, instead of having 34 market price units and four affordable units, I could just have 39 market price units. Sedona has six affordable units in the entire city. Wow. Six. That's yeah. it. And they're almost all apartments that are inside hotels. So that was part of like the plan from the developer. One of the uh, biggest things I think affecting the nation right now, not, you know, not just resort communities everywhere, is that after 2008, when we had the housing bubble, builders learned not to build as much. And we're seeing the same thing with gas right now. After the last time that uh, gasoline and oil prices collapsed, oil drillers learned not to pump as much oil. They like that oil is very expensive. They're not all going to rush to pump oil and then have the prices collapse. We have a housing shortage that is the result of builders cutting back since 2008. And it took us a while to feel the effects of that. We're feeling it now, but they are not going to accelerate as much as we need to for housing prices to come down because they never want housing prices to come down. The price of lumber is up. The price of land is up. Nobody wants housing prices to come down because they could potentially buy land pay for the lumber, and then have to sell that house for less than they built it for. And nobody wants to do that. So we're not going to see builders uh, going out and building as many houses as we need uh, to support the growth that we've had in the population of this country. 
And of course, here on the east end of Long Island, we're almost out of land anyways. You know, I think that's the other thing that's really driving up the prices is that I know even just on my street, you know, lots that have been sitting empty for 25 years, pretty much every one of them is now being built on. Like there's not a lot of empty space um, anymore, which really makes the affordable housing equation even harder, right? Yeah, there's there's just nowhere to go. Um, by me in, in Eastport, every once in a while, I'll see land for sale and it will be like, you know, $250,000 for a building lot. And, you know, five years ago, a house on a building lot that was complete and move and ready cost less than $250,000. Now it's that just for the land. Yeah. So where are we um, in terms of the East End? And I know that there's, um, you know, the idea that we will maybe have a, a housing fund that will start um, if the voters approve it next fall. Um, but have there been many discussions about Southampton or East Hampton Town coming up with a, a way to approach uh, affordable housing should this legislation pass? Well, the shared equity that we mentioned is one of those solutions which will help people with home ownership. Uh, Curtis Highsmith, who's the director of the Town of Southampton Housing Authority, uh, he mentioned you know re rehabbing existing housing stock. Maybe there's houses out there that nobody wants to buy but if somebody could come in there with the town support and rehab it into something livable that can now become a perpetually affordable unit uh, if the community housing fund provided cash incentives to people to build affordable apartments inside their homes that would make a, a very big difference and how how um firm do these plans have to be um, before this can go on to the ballot? I think when the town comes up with its plan, it needs to be an outline of here is how we want to spend the money. Uh, and here is where we've identified the need. Once that passes, everything will be considered on a case-by-case -case basis, right? So the first year when the money comes in and maybe Southampton Town gets $10 million in the first year, they might say, well, with the initial money, uh, we're going to concentrate our efforts on affordable apartments and we'll get to the shared equity and, and home buying later. Um, not every plan that they come up with needs to be instituted immediately, I imagine, though. I, I wonder if, if they're going to like, so when the CPF was first approved 20 years ago, um, they, the towns borrowed a lot of money in anticipation of future revenue. Um, say, you know, going to going to the banks and saying, we figure we're going to make 10 to $15 million a year for the next 30 years. Um, and so they borrowed heavily. Some of them, some of the towns got into trouble with that, but they borrowed heavily. And I, I wonder if that might happen here, where if, if you know, they're, they're anticipating getting 10 million to 15, uh, super, town supervisor um, Schneiderman thinks they'll get 15, $15 million per year. But if they can borrow $45 million um, upfront or more, maybe they can implement some different programs um, on some different levels moving forward, knowing that that money's gonna, gonna come in over time. I'm curious as to whether that'll happen. I think it probably would. So do we envision them building like uh, apartment complexes, big apartment complexes, or is that? Uh... I think one of, the, one of the things that Curtis Highsmith said at a recent sessions event we had is, is that you've got to really 
you've got to look at the the different levels and as brendan said the 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 different need um you've got you know doctors and 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 lawyers and teachers that can't afford housing so you've got to figure out how to provide them housing and maybe the shared equity plan works for that you've also got you know um maybe more um middle class workers who are your volunteer firefighters as well and your ambulance workers and all that and you've got to provide for them and then you've got lower income people who are you know working at starbucks and, and mcdonald's and all that and you need to provide for them so you need to provide apartments maybe for for the you know lower income people um maybe accessory accessory units for for that middle group or whatever so it has to be kind of across the board and i think you have to envision um you know providing housing for everybody to have a you know to have a solid um community makeup moving forward and then you also have communities like aspen and they saw what was coming down the pike back in the 1970s that they were about wow. to take off as a ski town and they very quickly established a lottery system that's pretty much like a pay-to-play sort of scenario so anyone from people who are working in hotels cleaning rooms all the way up to surgeons can enter this lottery and when your number comes up whether it takes a year or 50 years for it to come you pay what you can um, to buy a home in the community and then wow. the cycle restarts so you know that has also been considered a success in that community but there's no guessing you know when your number will come mm -hmm. up so you pay what you can and then the and then the town pays pays the difference unclear <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i don't know the financials <laughs> I mean, it, would, it, would have, it would have to be there had to there would have to be some kind of grant yeah. or incentive or, or but whatever I, but i think the system kind of feeds itself you know like obviously yeah. you have surgeons who are coming in at a higher price point than someone who's you know working in a restaurant or a hotel uh, so you know i think they kind of like feed into off, each off, other offset each other exactly yeah, yeah. That's mm. interesting. So does East Hampton have a, a housing manager like Southampton does? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so in, they do. Okay. to be clear, Curtis Highsmith runs the town of Southampton Housing Authority, uh, which is not actually a town agency. It's just a housing authority that's based in Southampton. Um, Kara Bach runs Southampton Town's actually like town department that concerns housing. And East Hampton has the same position. Hmm. So I guess these people are getting are, are these have they always been in these positions? Because I've just never really heard much about these offices before. So Karabak uh, assumed the helm of the Southampton Town Housing and Community Development uh, Division um, after Diana Weir. And Diana Weir had stepped into that position after uh, previously working for the Long Island Housing Partnership, which is a nonprofit. And Tom Rule is the director of housing for East Hampton Town. So I guess these guys are getting a, a very, very active now with all of this um, coming down the pike, right? Well, one of the things holding them back the most was the lack of a consistent source of funding. And if the CHF is approved by the voters and that consistent source of funding starts in 2023, uh, they're going to hit the ground running because they have a lot of things that they wanted to do that they just were, ne were never able to do because they didn't have the cash. And another thing that was mentioned by Ralph Fasano, the director of Concerned Housing at our previous sessions event, was that 
the people that hand out the, uh, the money and the tax incentives uh, to local municipalities to do affordable housing, they like to see buy-in from those lo local municipalities. One of the ways that they can get buy-in is now the town of Southampton or East Hampton could say, here's how much money we're willing to kick in from the community housing fund. And then that money will be compounded because now they're going to be recipients of grants and funding that before they were very low on the totem pole to get that grants and fundings. And now they've moved up the totem pole. Oh, that's interesting. They put more in and you get more out. Yes. Well, that's the other, that's the other end of this, Annette. And it's the code changes that mandate that builders of houses, commercial properties, mixed use properties have to think ahead and put in spaces that can be used for apartments. You know, say if you're going to build a new business, the second and third floor have yeah. to be affordable apartments. Wow. So we have, a, yeah, we're going to be talking about this again, I think, going down the pipe. Several years. So Michelle, are you going to keep in touch with the people that you make contact with, do you think? Oh, absolutely. No. I told them that this was the first of many, many stories to come. So they're stuck with me for forever. several years. All right. So you're, you're now our... How to figure it out, girl. <laughs> 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and SagHarborExpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.